Hello, and welcome to the Uncover Up with your hosts Lee Kuhn Lee and Nathan Radke. So, Nathan, I want to read you something. Okay. And um, I want you to imagine a man sitting in a locked room, and outside that room are images that he is trying to guess what they are. And he's, he's inside this room with a pen and paper. There's no way for anybody to communicate with him. And he is trying to determine what these images outside the room are. So okay. let me read you just a couple of paragraphs of what I have in front of me. Saturday, August 4th. Two drawing experiments were conducted this day. In both of these, Geller was closeted in an opaque, acoustically and electrically shielded room. This room is the double-walled shielded room used for EEG research in the Life Sciences Division of SRI. It is locked by means of an inner and outer door, each of which is secured with a refrigerator-type locking mechanism. Two drawings used in this experiment were selected by randomly opening a large college dictionary and selecting the first word which could reasonably be drawn. The first word obtained in this manner was fuse, and the object drawn was a firecracker. All target selection and picture drawing was done with Geller already in the shielded room. Geller was notified via intercom when the target picture was drawn and taped to the wall outside his enclosure. His almost immediate response was that he saw, quote, a cylinder with noise coming out of it, end quote. He was continuously monitored by a one-way audio circuit. His drawing to correspond to the target was a drum, along with a number of other cylindrical-looking objects. The second word selected was bunch, and the target was a bunch of grapes. Geller's immediate response was that he saw, quote, drops of water coming out of the picture, end quote. He then talked about, quote, purple circles, end quote. Finally, he said that he was quite sure that he had the picture. His drawing was indeed a bunch of grapes. Both the target picture and Geller's rendition had 24 grapes in the bunch. That sounded like you were reading something from a science fiction novel or a fantasy novel, but what were you actually reading, Lee? I was reading the recently declassified, well, declassified in 2003, uh, CIA files about uh, experiments into ESP research. Now, the guy Geller, that's Yuri Geller, a guy that uh, listeners might know as kind of a magician who claims that he can bend spoons with his brain. <laughs> and, that's right, yeah. And he can, like, figure out what cards you have in your hand, and he can do all these... Well, he can perform ESP. Yes. Well, ESP if you believe it, or mentalism if you are a skeptic. And it seems like the people who were recording this were not skeptics, that these people believed that Gower had this ability, this in un unexplainable ability to know something that he shouldn't have been able to know. Well, I guess that is the contention. I mean, certainly this, what these documents refer to, and I'm here to ask uh, you, Nathan, about, about all of this, but 
Um, what these documents are uh, recounting are actual experiments done by the U.S. government into whether ESP exists and whether it could be used for military purposes. ESP, we've got CIA, we'll probably have the KGB at some point, we'll have the DIA. <laughs> We're looking at sort of the intersection of two spooky ideas. We're looking at the spooky idea of secret intelligence and agencies who perform that intelligence, and we're looking at the spookier idea of ESP, of extrasensory perception, of something that is often called like a sixth sense, but that's not very accurate because we actually have tons and tons of senses. So this is really about things like, as I understand it, you know, you were to draw a picture in a different room and without any kind of communication with you, there might be a way that I would be able to find out through some kind of extrasensory perception what that picture was or how you were feeling or what you were thinking. This is what we're talking about. Is that right? Yeah, or just imagine the classic idea of, uh, I believe they're called Zener cards, where you have five cards with different patterns on them and I hold on to one, you can't see it but you just focus your mind and you think, oh, it's wavy lines. Hmm. And I say, it is wavy lines. So we want to know, or what, what the um, U.S. intelligence here is investigating is basically, are psychics for real or is it just a scam? Yeah, are they for real? Can we use them to spy? Are other people using them to spy on us? Uh, is this a threat to national security? Or could we use this to threaten someone else's national security? Specifically, in this case... In 1973, it would have been the Soviets, because this takes place in the shadow of one of the weirdest times in human history, which is the Cold War. Hmm. Now, I have to admit, this is pretty unbelievable stuff. It is unbelievable that the U.S. government was even spending money researching this. A lot of money. And it's it seems to me just so unrealistic that anybody would take this seriously. So let me ask you, what... Where does all of this stuff come from? I mean, what, where would anybody get the idea that, you know, you could find out what other people are thinking and figure out what the wavy lines on the cards are without seeing them? What, what, is there a kind of a background to this? Is there any kind of history to the, these ideas? Well, the background of, of this idea, we could call it, uh, sometimes it's called spiritualism, uh, is this idea that you can use supernatural forces, things that can't be explained with, the natural processes, but this idea that you could sort of peer beyond what was around you is a, a pretty old idea. I mean, we have uh, lots of examples. Uh, there was a guy, Swedenborg, uh, inappropriately left Sweden in the 1700s, who was a seer, who uh, I'm not that familiar with his case, but I think he was known for predicting his neighbor's house burning down, huh. and then his own house burning down. More recently, we had in America, some sisters, the Fox sisters in the 1800s, and they claimed to be able to communicate with spirits using sort of almost a Morse code. They would tap out messages, despite the fact that as this was happening, the sisters would all have their hands sitting on the table where everyone could see them. Huh. But uh, not their feet, and it turned out that <laughs> one of the Fox sisters had double-jointed toes, and she was just using that skill to tap on the ground. And there was a real interest in spiritualism in the United States in the early uh, 1900s. Uh, Houdini, in particular, 
uh, took a real interest in this, but as a skeptic, as much as Houdini is known for his escapes, he probably would have been happier to be known for his debunking of mediums, people who said that they could speak to ghosts, people who said that they could communicate with spirits or use telepathy. And in the 1920s, one of the things he did was he went and visited different mediums, had them display their so-called powers, and then, being a magician himself, was able to figure out and expose them and say, oh no, these are the natural means you are using, pulleys and wires and mm -hmm. uh, devices and sleight of hand and things like that. In fact, he even was part of an offered cash prize if anybody could prove the existence of any paranormal supernatural ability i think the prize was something like twenty thousand uh, dollars which of course was never collected and i think something like that exists today today too i mean I can't... it's up to a million dollars yeah and i think that's now right. it's it's the amazing randy another another magician okay. who takes his influence and his inspiration from houdini and actually the amazing randy will show up again later when we go into more detail into geller and his claims to be able to be psychic okay i'll give you an example of one one paranormal uh, medium, there was a guy called, and I will mispronounce this, Joaquin Argamasilla. Joaquin Argamasilla. 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 Joaquin Argamasilla. <laughs> uh, we have been practicing got, that name all day. And the more I say it, the worse it gets. <laughs> his nickname was the Spaniard with the X-ray eyes. And his amazing ability was that he would wear a blindfold and people would write something and then they'd put it in a box and they put the they cover the writing uh, with the box on a table, and uh, Joaquin would be able to tell what was written down on that piece of paper, which was quite amazing. Hmm. Until it was pointed out that what he was doing was he was peeking under the blindfold and lifting the box up a little bit, which is not which is cheating. Not that impressive at all. I think at this point, uh, before we get into uh, the specifics of the history of of how this is used in spying, we should talk a little bit about the uh, different kinds of ESP because there isn't just one form of extrasensory perception. It, it, it tends oh, to be see. broken down into a few different categories. So oh. why don't we go through those categories? So by, by different types of ESP, do you mean things like telekinesis yeah. versus like telepathy, for example? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Uh, so, so, so what is telekinesis, for example? Telekinesis would be my ability to move a banana with just the power of my mind without touching it. Ah, uh, this is the Jedi skill. Yeah, exactly. Okay, okay. And, and okay, so so we have telekinesis. That's me moving the banana with my mind. And then there's telepathy. That would be me putting the idea of the banana in your mind. Uh-huh. Without telling you. Would it, could it also be, like, say, knowing that I'm thinking about a banana? Yeah, anything, anything that you're thinking that that I'm thinking is any kind of connection between two minds without any other form of external communication, that would be telepathy. Okay. I think my dog is able to do that on me. But Dogs actually do have a very <laughs> keen intuition, but it's entirely based on smells and right, sounds. Okay. And it seems like telepathy because okay. they are so socially aware. So if we have telekinesis and telepathy, what, what other... What else is, is it, what, like clairvoyance? Clairvoyance would be knowing that you had a banana. <laughs> um, and then what else is there? 
Uh, precognition. Oh, okay. Precog- which is, before you even show, showed up, I'd be like, he is he is going to bring me a banana. Uh-huh. And then you would show up with a banana. Okay, okay. So, and you can see how each of these would be super useful in, during the Cold War in covert operations. I mean, this is what, like, half the superhero movies are based on, yeah. right? Is that good guys or bad guys have some kind of version of these powers... And the good guys better get some too, otherwise we're going to lose humanity or the world or whatever it is. Well, imagine if you had one side that had telepathy and were able to read the minds of the generals and the politicians. Or if one side had precognition and they knew what your plan was going to be even maybe before you did. Or if they had telekinesis, they could sabotage your equipment from, from afar. This sounds like the ultimate weapon. Oh, yeah. If it existed, it would be an unbelievably powerful weapon. And because of that, interest in this field, I mean, even past kind of like the parlor tricks that we saw with people like the Fox sisters or the Spaniard with the x-ray eyes, I mean, there was an official interest in this by academics and scientists. And in particular, and this will be important because, of course, we're talking about the Cold War, the Soviet scientists uh, had a real keen interest in this, and I, I think there's very there's some specific reasons why we see this interest in this in the Soviet Union, hmm. and and it probably predates even the creation of the Soviet Union, hmm. because before the Soviets we had Russia, and you know more about this than me. What was the Russian? What would be the Russian sort of attitude towards spiritualism and the occult and sort of mysterious <clears> phenomena? <throat> I think on the whole, I mean, I would struggle to speak for an entire country um, and an entire people in a a very big country with a very rich and long history. But certainly I think uh, there's an interesting example um, with the last uh, czar and uh, his wife, and they brought in a very strange person into their midst known as Rasputin. And Rasputin was supposed to be a... Uh, monk who was also a mystic and the reason the royal family in Russia at that time was interested in him was because he apparently had healing powers they had their son you have to remind me of the illness when your blood doesn't clot hemophilia thank you hemophilia which is pretty common in royal families oh is it okay well he suffered from uh, so that is the czar and um, Zarina's son suffered from hemophilia which is uh, when your blood doesn't clot, if you get a, a scrape or a scratch, and you can go bleeding, you know, quite dangerously. And apparently, this mystic monk, Rasputin, was able to heal him when he had um, a, a specific, a, a particularly severe episode. So he became... And heal a, him with the power of his mind. That's as right. As opposed to application of bandages yes, or... Yes, that, that's a good point. We should, we should mention that. Yes, it was apparently just by... Um, the power of touch or the power of his mind, um, certainly nothing that uh, we would recognize as conventional evidence-based medicine today. And this is something, this is sort of the story. We're not saying this did happen or that Rasputin genuinely had any powers like that. That's but th- right. But this but is certainly the story that's told of Rasputin. That's right. And certainly um, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, his parents, the, uh, the Tsar and Tsarina, believed that he had this power. And I bring it up because I think this does speak to a certain interest, a certain kind of 
a willingness to accept even in the educated elite circles of Russia at that time. And that, this was the 1910s. That's right. This would have been uh, happening. Yeah, or I guess even a bit earlier. But yeah, that we were talking about the uh, early 20th century, uh, the royal family, very educated, very, you know, global, interconnected. Um, the, the age of electricity and machinery. Yeah, and, and they were certainly believers in something like this. And I, I mean, Russia at that time had a very large uh, peasant base. These are people who um, are, are not necessarily well-educated, even literate. Um, they, you know, I mean, I, I don't, again, want to be too... Uh, reductive about it, but there's probably a lot of superstitious beliefs uh, in those communities, in some of them. And I, I, I would not be surprised that like many other places, uh, these ideas were taken very seriously at that period. See, but then uh, Rasputin gets killed in a really long, from what I understood, it, it took a really long time to kill him. Of course, I'm basing that mostly on the Boney M song. <laughs> they, there were a couple of attempts to actually uh, get rid of him, and he, he dodged a bunch of them. Um, and there were other, you know, there were things in his life that certainly led people to suspect that he was uh, a phony, that he was a charlatan. He was a notorious drunk. Um, he was a notorious womanizer. He was, and remember, this is supposed to be a monk. Um, not that uh, having some alcohol is necessarily a bad thing, but if you are, you know, if you are supposed to be a monk, you should probably not be excessively drinking, excessively fornicating, probably not fornicating at all. I'm not sure on my monkish rules. I don't uh, know, but I think that might be one of them. <laughs> all right, so he was a very suspicious monk, but he did seem to have this. He certainly, regardless of what kind of supernatural powers he had, he certainly had power over... The royal family. Yes, that's right. And and people wondered, you know, who's really in charge uh, of Russia? And so he gets killed. Uh, then, of course, all of the royal family gets killed. Yes. Because in 1917, we have... 1917, 1918, we have the Russian Revolution, which puts an end to the Russian monarchy and institutes something known as Soviet communism, which brings with it its own ideology, which is quite different from the, the previous ideology. And I, I think this is super important. And I think this is a really fascinating example of how ideology... Maybe we should define ideology right now, actually. How would you explain ideology? Did we want to take a break at this point? Yeah, let's take a break. <laughs> take a break for a second and we'll let's come back take and we'll a define break. ideology. All right. should, to be fair, alert anybody who's listening to the fact that there are at least two totally distinct definitions of the concept of ideology. On the one hand, there is a notion that ideology is a kind of uh, mystification or a cover of reality. So there is a really real reality out there. And then there's ideology that sort of gets in the way and, and confuses. So things. it's like wearing goggles. That's right. It's like getting in the way of seeing things. It's changing your vision. That's right. So if we think about, say, rose-colored goggles, yeah, now you suddenly see the real world that's out there, but with this extra tinge that isn't actually in the world. It's just part of your goggles. So that's one definition of ideology. That's often how we use it um, in common culture. 
when we talk about other people's beliefs, you know, if we if we meet a communist or if we meet a religious fundamentalist, we often talk about their ideology as being something separate from how the world really is. It's Others, how they see how the world world really is, and everything that they see in the world gets filtered through that, exactly. that ideological lens. Exactly. But but in this way of thinking about ideology, there's a diff distinction between the real world and this kind of way we think about it. There's another way of thinking about ideology, and, and this is the way I tend to think about it in my own research and in my own work, which is that instead of ideology being a set of rose-colored glasses, ideology is more like a set of eyes. It is the very, um, it is the very kind of interpretive mechanism, like a language that you need in order to understand reality as such. And so that is to say we are all subject to one or another kind of ideology. It's not just the fundamentalists and the communists who have ideology. We also have ideology. It's just an inescapable part of being human. It's a way of understanding the world around us. And everybody needs some kind of method of understanding the world around us. So everyone has ideology. That's exactly right. And it's, it's, uh, I like to think of it as a set of background assumptions that often just don't get called into play. There's no real empirical way to determine what reality is. So my way of thinking about ideology is this uh, second way, that it's something, it's just a set of background assumptions we all have, and generally to make it ideology as opposed to sort of idiosyncratic personal beliefs, it's uh, background assumptions we share with each other. Now, the, the Soviets had a very specific ideology, and they were very serious about their ideology. That's true, although, I, you know, again, to be fair and critical, I would say they're no more serious than we are. Okay, um, touche. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. Um, in Marxism, which, which the Soviet Union was based on, Marxist theory is based on something known as historical materialism. And... Of course, Marxists and even Marx himself uh, spent a lot of time defining it and arguing about what exactly it meant. But essentially, the the um, assumption in uh, historical materialism is that if you want to try and explain anything about the world, you need to use history and no kind of spiritual, religious, psychic uh, interference. There's no gods or angels or will of history that changes things. It is simply people who are doing work and the kind of conditions, natural and historical conditions that they suffer there's, from. There's only, the nat there's only the natural, there's only the material, there's only things. That's right. And that's it. Nathan just hit the table, which is a thing. And it exists. Yeah. Now... That was not a spirit tapping on the table. <laughs> the Soviets then took this and created something, a more of an official, rigid ideology that they called diamat. Um, which uh, goes back to dialectical materialism. But basically, it ended up becoming state official ideology, which was much less nuanced than anything you will find in Marx and really basically boiled down to God does not exist, religion is bogus, and, you know, there's, there's no such thing as spirituality or heaven or any of that stuff. There's only the physical world. That's right. The things we make and the ways we make them. And that's that's it. it. That, and that's Soviet ideology at the beginning. And so what's interesting to me is then what happens to this interest in ESP when it bumps up against this Soviet ideology, which was pretty, as you say, it was pretty rigid. And you could 
like in those days, I think you could probably get in trouble if you went contrary to the ideology of the time. Oh, indeed. A great way to end up in the uh, Soviet prison system known as the Gulag uh, was to be openly religious, for example. Yeah, because um, that, that, that ran contrary to the goggles that they wanted everyone wearing, which is, no, there's only the physical world. That's right. So then what's interesting to me and uh, what's amazing is that when you read some of these Soviet scientists who are interested in ESP, they have to come up with natural explanations for it. Okay. They can't have anything to do with spirits, nothing to do with extra sensory perception in the sort of the ether or whatever. It's got to basically be electrical. It's got to be some biochemical process. For example, I love this, the search for cerebral radio. Huh. Is the name of this particular article. For cerebral radio? Cerebral, well, radio was pretty new at the time. Okay. And so people were like, okay, well, radio is natural. So maybe ESP is a kind of brain radio. And you could you could talk about that without getting into trouble. Because right. you weren't talking about any I kind get of it. mysticism. So the idea would be that we would sort of be sending out radio wave-like signals out of our brain and, and some people would be able to receive those. But they would still be a measurable scientific fact. Right, I get it. It would be still be something that you could experiment on. It would okay. still be something that would exist in the physical world. This article is interesting and I think it speaks a lot to the nature of ideology and knowledge. So in this article called Thought Transmission is Impossible by Dmitry Beryakov in, I think, 1950s, based on when he was writing. He comes up with all sorts of biochemical explanations as far as why ESP is impossible. But after going through some fairly scientific considerations, he ends with, and I quote, I shall allow myself to mention but one basic principle of the Marxist-Leninist philosophy on the unity and continuity of the psychic and the psychological. Thought is a property of the brain matter and is inseparable from it. So it's interesting that he has all these scientific explanations why ESP is impossible, but then he ends with an ideological reason. Mm -hmm. Why is it impossible? Because Marxist-Leninist says it's impossible. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, and I, I mean, that is quite telling. What's interesting is that they were able to do enough experiments to try to bring ESP into the realm of the natural that they were able to continue their studies. And of course, because it was in Russia, a lot of the studies uh, had dogs in them because they had had such great success with the very famous uh, dog studies of... Pavlov. Pavlov. Ding, ding. Right. So the guy that's most important to us is probably a guy called Leonid Vasilyev. He uh, founded the Institute of Brain Research in 1921. He became very interested in these this possibility of brain radios. And in 1959 wrote a uh, an article called The Mysterious Phenomena of the Human Psyche, which was very influential. And by the 1960s, we start to see labs studying basically ESP and parapsychology in Moscow, Kiev, Kharkov, Leningrad, and in other places that I can't pronounce. You want to give that one a try? <laughs> I can't read your writing. Oh, man. Uh, Nova. Oh, that's an N. Yeah. Nova's... Novis Bis... I have no idea. And in Leningrad. Now, meanwhile, in the United States, and now we're talking about like the 1930s, there was not nearly as much interest in this field. It was seen as sort of like parlor tricks. 
there had, uh, in part maybe because of the work of people like Houdini, there was a, maybe a bit more skepticism about some of this, but there was still a lot of uh, professors and scientists who were convinced that this was legit and real. Uh, one guy called George Estabrooks, a uh, philosophy professor in New York, before the war he wrote to J. Edgar Hoover in the FBI warning of the threat of some of these parapsychological issues. The one that he was most concerned with was the possibility that somebody could be hypnotized to be a spy or an assassin or a saboteur without them knowing. That's like the Manchurian candidate, isn't it? Exactly like the Manchurian candidate, which is something that we'll have a podcast on later. Okay. Because we don't have time for that now. And now eventually, also something that we don't have time for now, but I'm going to mention anyway, is that Esther Brooks would move on to being a consultant on something, uh, a CIA project called MK Ultra. Ooh, you'll have to stay tuned for that. Yeah, we'll definitely get into MK Ultra. <laughs> so much LSD. But this is when something interesting happens. Now we're getting into the 1950s. The Cold War is in full force. World War II is over. And the Soviet Union and the Americans, although they had been allies in World War II, now they were arch enemies divided by ideology. And there is a new technology, the nuclear submarine. Mm. The Americans have it. No one else has it. The first one is the USS Nautilus. And the advantage of the nuclear submarine is that unlike any other submarine at the time, it can stay underwater without coming up to recharge batteries. Mm. They don't have to exchange air. Basically, the only thing that forces you up to the surface is when you start running out of food, which means that instead of coming up daily, you can stay underwater for weeks and weeks completely silent, completely... So this must have been a very... Uh, threatening development for the Soviet Union. I mean, if, if they can stay underwater for, I guess, weeks at a time, would this mean that they were undetectable? Would this mean that they could get close to the Soviet uh, territories? They could go right under the North Pole, under the polar ice, which was something that had been impossible up until this point. They go right under the polar ice and they could get to the Soviet Union without the Soviets knowing anything about mm. it. So it was very alarming to the Soviets. And, of course, this is naturally the first thing that the Americans then do with this, the Nautilus, and uh, something called uh, Operation Sunshine. They take this uh, new boat under the Arctic ice and just sit it there. But what's fascinating and uh, important to us in our, in our discussion of ESP is that a French <coughs> magazine uh, called The Constellation comes out with a story in the late 50s about how the Americans had actually been doing secret ESP experiments with this submarine under the Arctic ice. The idea being that because it's almost impossible to communicate with a submarine that far away, that deep down, that they were going to use ESP as a method of communication. Wow. So they're... The, okay, you have to explain this to me. Now, yeah, this is going to take some unpacking. They, sure. So the idea here is that there is a submarine under the polar ice caps. Yep. They're not using radio or other conventional forms of communication. Instead, ESP. they... So what? We have some people back in the United States, and they're just going to think some messages? Yeah, they're going to think messages to somebody in the submarine who is then going to think messages back. Now, this is where I'm going to get into a bit of conjecture. Like, I am not 100% confident about this. Uh, because I haven't been able to come up with the evidence for it, because it's 
almost impossible to come up with evidence for something like this. I believe that this story was deliberately faked by American intelligence. Hmm. I think that it was leaked to you the mean French press. The constellate, the story in constellation, the French uh, story about the ESP being tested on the submarine, I think, is deliberately faked by American intelligence. Now, this is though something that is part of um, intelligence procedures, right? Is to throw misinformation out there to to get the enemy off track. If this were the case, this would not be unusual. Is that oh, right? Oh, for sure. Like. Um, when you were a kid, did your parents try to give you carrots? Uh, yes. And did they ever tell you that carrots were good for eyesight? Yes, they did. And they told me that bunnies never wear glasses as uh, is, <laughs> evidence for that it. Is, that adds up. <laughs> that, that seems true. Well, what's fascinating is, do you know why we have the belief that carrots are good for eyesight? I thought it had something to do with vitamin A. Well, that's sort of, I mean, we need vitamin A to keep from going blind. Right, okay. But, but it doesn't improve our eyesight per se. I see. What's fascinating is that the idea that carrots uh, give you good eyesight was a, uh, was a lie put out by British intelligence during World War II. Because they had a new technology, radar. Huh. And they were able to detect when German bombers were coming over at night. But they were like, we need some kind of explanation as to why our pilots are able to find these planes at night. Because they didn't want the Germans to know about radar. So they started putting these stories out being like, we force our pilots to eat a ton of carrots. Hmm. And so then the German pilots were eating carrots. Everyone was eating carrots. And the lie was so effective. Not only were they able to hide radar for a while, but even today... We still think that carrots improve eyesight. Oh, so that's interesting. Okay, so... This so, would not be unusual for uh, an intelligence uh, outfit to, to spread misinformation. Oh, there's no way to cover something up. So then the question should be, what would they be interested in covering up? What would this ESP fake story be covering up? And I would argue that there was a bunch of new technologies that they were developing to help them communicate with deep submarines, things like uh, VLF radio, very low frequency radio, uh, or the hydrophones that they were placing all throughout the ocean. So, now, a hydrophone, we probably need some explanation on that. These are... It's basically an underwater microphone. Okay. Um, and so those very top secret technologies could be hidden if they had this cover story that, no, no, we're using ESP. Uh, the other possible reason for an intelligence agency to plant a fake story is that it would force the, the other side, in this case the Soviets, to tie up valuable resources and scientists and money trying to research ESP. I see. So it's a bit of a... And so again, instead of actually building bombs, we have people working on things that are not going to go anywhere. Exactly. And so you take some of their best minds, and instead, precisely as you say, instead of working on missile defense or stealth technology, they're off trying to get people to... Find bunches of grapes. Find bunches of grapes. <laughs> so... <clears throat> My reasons for arguing that this is a hoax and that they didn't actually conduct this study, it seems suspicious to me that this French magazine was able to get this information. It was released not by American journalism, um, you, who would have more of an uh, access to the American military if this happened. And it would be such an unbelievably top secret event. I'm, I just find it suspicious that this French magazine was able to gather the information. So it seems 
it's possible that they were doing experiments on the Nautilus with ESP. I think it's more likely it was a carrot-style hoax. Hmm. But it did. if it was a hoax, it worked, because the Soviets, uh, Vasiliev in particular, who I mentioned before, he said, listen, this shows, this demonstrates that we have to spend a bunch of our time and energy investigating the military and intelligence potential of ESP. And in fact, uh, I've got a quote from uh, Vasiliev from 1960 in a Leningrad symposium. And maybe I'll have you explain just how important the sentence would be to the Russian people at the time. The discovery of the energy behind telepathy will be as important as the discovery of atomic energy. Wow. Well, I mean, certainly at this point, we are in an arms race, and uh, that is to say the Soviet Union and the United States is in an arms race. And part of, I mean, certainly the most important weapon um, that you can develop is going to be the nuclear weapon. Nuclear bombs, hydrogen bombs, uh, amazing destructive capability. And if this is how they were seeing things, that figuring out how telekinesis, telepathy, what were the other ones? Clairvoyance, Clairvoyance and precognition. If this is, if the dynamism animating those phenomena, if they're being, if this is being put in context as important as the nuclear bomb, that's basically as important as it gets, I would say, at this time. And I think as we stated at the beginning, indeed, if you could get, uh, if you could create sleeper agents by, you know, implanting thoughts in them, if you could destroy their technology, if you could sabotage them without ever needing to leave your own soil, your bunker, your country. I mean, I couldn't imagine. I think the bombs would be ineffective in a world where you could actually uh, control other people like that. So I think... Yeah, this... if you had one side with nuclear weapons, the other side had ESP, yes. maybe the... my money's on the ESP. I think so. I would, I would certainly uh, put my money there. So, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think it's a telling quote in the sense that it does... Um, it, it, it demonstrates how seriously they were taking this, or at least some people were. Because it was hard to spy. That's right. I mean, uh, they you, you try to fly airplanes over the Soviet Union, they get shot down like Gary Powers did in his, in his U-2. Uh, you've got spies, but they can get captured and killed. If you could just have people sitting in the comfort of a bunker somewhere, safe and sound, and just use their ESP to be able to figure out what people were thinking or where armies were... That would be an unbelievable advantage. Yeah, and you don't have all the problems of traditional spying where, you know, the other person might know you're a spy and give you false information. Or maybe you got or... a double agent spy. Exactly. Triple agent spy. This oh, way you just get right the to the source by just knowing what they're thinking. If it worked. If it worked. If it worked. And what's interesting is that, and, and it's interesting to me because I think the, the Nautilus story is fake, is that the Soviets then did a sub-experiment of their own in 1966, which, according to uh, Soviet state press, in this case Sputnik, uh, was a success, and they were able to completely, even though it was deep underwater, they were still able to perfectly uh, interpret the ESP messages that were being sent. I think that's probably also a bit of propaganda from the Soviets. Yeah. It seems uh, unlikely they were actually <laughs> successful, but they say they were successful. I don't necessarily believe them. Maybe at this point I should, though, mention Annie Jacobson's 
alternative, well, I, I wouldn't necessarily call it an alternative thesis, but... Um, more sort of more complementary, I would say. Yeah, so she, so um, Nathan has just been sort of narrating the history of uh, the Soviet and American interest in this. And Annie Jacobson, who is a researcher and journalist and has written a number of books in the area of the CIA and their secret operations... Which I recommend. Right. Well, what would you recommend, Nathan? Uh, definitely Area 51, an uncensored history of America's top secret military base is excellent. Um, she did one on Project Paperclip, Project too, Paperclip, didn't she? also excellent. And this book that I'm uh, referencing now is called Phenomena, the secret history of the U.S. government. I should have looked this name up before I mentioned it online. Because... <laughs> well, she's also got one on DARPA, which is very good. <laughs> it's so difficult. Let's take a break. Let's take a break. Damn it. Phenomena... Okay. And we're back. And we're back. Annie Jacobson's Phenomena, the Secret History of the U.S. Government's Investigation into Extrasensory Perception and Psychokinesis. No, I haven't read that, but I will definitely read that book. I haven't read it either, but I have heard her give an interview about it. Uh, the book, just for uh, our listeners, uh, has just been published in 2017, so it's uh, hot off the press. And I'm not surprised that it came out in 2017 because certainly a lot of the research that we've been doing has only just been declassified as of January 2017. So I think the same reason that we're finding this stuff is the same reason that she, who is probably has more um, enthusiasm than us. She was able to get a whole book out of it. She was able to get a whole book out. She has, <laughs> has more organizational ability than us. Well, she argues, as I understand it, that a lot of this stuff goes back to the Nazis and World War II, and that the Nazis were actually doing a bunch of the early investigation into ESP, uh, psychokinesis, telekinesis, and that when the Soviet Union and the USA and their allies but especially the Soviet Union, the USA, conquer Germany in 1945, they come upon these troves of documents and the USA walks away with some of them, the Soviet Union with others, and they both begin worrying that the other side is maybe starting to do research and know stuff uh, based on what the Nazis were doing. So, now, Do you find that a belief based on what you know about history? Is that a believable claim? It certainly is. Uh, I, again, just to be very honest, I haven't done the research in this area myself, haven't read her book, uh, but the Nazis were notorious for being, as, as high-ranking Nazis here, we're talking about people like Himmler to some extent, Hitler, and other people um, right up in the party were notoriously interested in mysticism, in ESP, in religious phenomena, in rather bizarre conspiracy theories. I would not uh, view it as a stretch 
if I discovered that they were indeed doing experiments on ESP and its its potential weaponization. And and we know for sure that both the Soviets and the Americans were really interested in German research from World War II. Well, certainly, like I mean... That is beyond a doubt. That is beyond a doubt. I mean, that's... And you know a lot about Project Paperclip, but that is, I mean, a lot of the rocket technology and weapons technology comes straight out of defeated Germany in 1945. So, yeah, I mean, we haven't read this book, but it is certainly entirely possible that the, the Germans were working on this and the Soviets and the Americans both grabbed some of this research. That's right. So I just wanted to throw that out there as uh, to augment uh, Nathan's history and suggest that there is um, uh, maybe another wrinkle in that story. Uh, so then what happens is that, and this is where I think it gets really fascinating, if it isn't already fascinating, from my perspective, the Nautilus story was a hoax to try to distract the Soviets, and it worked really well, and the Soviets started pumping a lot of energy and uh, financial support behind ESP research. But then the whole thing kind of backfires because the Americans, who through their sort of conventional intelligence network, realized, whoa, the Soviets are devoting a lot of time and energy to the ESP. There must be something to it. And so then the Americans, the whole point of this project, I think, was to trick the Soviets into researching something ridiculous. But they did it so well that now the Americans in the 1960s and 70s are like, oh, we've got to get on this too. It's like if I was trying to scare you out of a house and I said, don't go in there, there's ghosts in that house, even though I knew that they were fake. And you said, oh, no, ghosts. And then I said... Oh no, ghosts! And we both ran away. And we both ran away from the house. <laughs> so the, so you're saying that this the Americans planted fake evidence that they were working on ESP. The Soviets took that to be serious and started devoting research themselves. And then a decade, fast forward a decade, and the Americans discovered that the Soviets are doing this and get worried that there might be like an ESP gap, like there is a weapons gap or a missile gap or a nuclear bomb gap and start devoting energy and material themselves. Yeah, that's what I've put together from this. I mean, I'm not 100% <laughs> because, again, I don't know for sure that the Nautilus story was a hoax, but I am pretty confident that it was. And so, yeah, that's basically what I'm saying happened. So then the in response to the Soviet interest in ESP, uh, the DIA, or Defense Intelligence Agency, which is one of the Americans' many, many intelligence agencies, starts to put together a fairly well-funded program uh, it had a bunch of code names. I'll list them in case anybody's curious about researching. Uh, Gondola Wish, Grill Flame, Center Lane, Sunstreak, Scanate. But eventually it becomes known as Stargate, hmm. which is a fantastic science fiction name. <laughs> Overseen by uh, Lieutenant Atwater, who was a guy who was kind of a disciple of a guy who we'll probably get into in a different podcast, a Major General Stubblebine. Stubblebine is maybe my favorite name so far. And I think once we get into what Stubblebine was up to, he's going to be one of just your favorite historical figures. Okay. Because eventually Stubblebine will be responsible for Project Jedi. Uh-oh. Which we, again, don't have time to get into today. But the Stargate Project, by whatever whatever name, the point is remote viewing. Now, and... explain remote viewing, because this brings us right back to Yuri Geller. Yeah. And what I was just reading at the outset. Exactly. I mean... It is a pain to have spies. Spies tend to be highly unreliable and they're kind of squirrely. 
Well, and apparently another big problem with spies is if you, you send them out to this other place and you don't activate them soon enough, they just kind of are happy where they are and yes. don't want to be activated 10, sort, 15 years into sort of it. sort drift away. Yeah. Or they just make stuff up. Right. Because, <laughs> like, because they'll make stuff up and then you want, you want to believe it, so you do believe it. And so there have been lots of uh, examples of spies who for years just made up a bunch of nonsense. So if you could bypass that, if you could get the direct information through remote viewing or using ESP, extrasensory perception, you can't tell. Every time I say ESP in this podcast, I close my eyes and I point That's at my right. head. He's really doing that. Every time. <laughs> but that doesn't work on a podcast. All right. So the goals of Stargate, using ESP to spy on basically the Soviets, but they also said that it, you could use it for enhanced environmental monitoring. So I guess like the weather. Huh. So you could have weathermen with ESP, who would be more accurate. Can't be worse than the weathermen we have now. No, because they they don't do well. Um, Alternate communications capabilities, obviously, instead of using radios or Mm -hmm. something that could be intercepted or pigeons, you could simply just beam into the person's head, here are the coordinates. Uh, This is an interesting one. Enhanced human-machine interactions, Hmm. they thought would be uh, part of Stargate. And again, I'm getting this directly from declassified CIA documents. Yeah, that's right. We are we have them in front of us. Yeah. Interplanetary communications. That We're, is amazing. That's amazing. So this, that is to say we would contact aliens with our thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, or if we sent people to other planets, we could just talk to them. We could be like, "How's it going up there?" and they'd be like, "It's cold." Like, "Oh, okay. We'll send sweaters." <laughs> Alternate medical treatments, so mm-hmm. if somebody has a broken bone, rather than trying to set it, you could just, like, go Rasputin style. And uh, production of new educational methods. You could simply beam knowledge into students' heads. If only. What a world. And so, and this, these are the, the, the stated objectives of Project Stargate. Yeah, which was, which had, uh, I've come across a figure of $2 million, and this is $2 million of 1970s dollars, $2 million was spent by the DIA and some private uh, concerns. $2 million taxpayer dollars spent on this project. And that's where we come to your Uri Geller, who was brought in as like a superstar of ESP. Hmm. And reading over this, and, I, and you've also read through um, a sort of a dialogue between mm-hmm. Geller and his handler. Yeah. What impression did you get from the handler? Was this somebody who was really buying into this? Yeah. Uh, and, and again, this is what I find so unbelievable. I mean, we're sitting here in front of CIA documents, declassified, highly... That's right. <laughs> um, th- this stuff, as you said, is, is very well funded. Mm-hmm. Um, these scientists are taking this very seriously. And to be fair, I think it's a worthwhile scientific question to ask, is this stuff real? Yeah, maybe right? it is. Maybe it is. And I wouldn't fault anybody for, you know, wanting to d- create an experiment which would determine uh, whether it was real. Certainly, in, the, in these documents, I was... Well, there was a number of things that, that got me thinking, but I was, I was not as impressed uh, with his accuracy as, as it might... Uh, there was a lot of uh, pictures where he actually had to pass, where he wasn't able to get an image... Certainly the, the instances where he manages to determine what the image is that he's supposed to um, recognize, like a bunch of 24 grapes, I mean, that's pretty accurate. 
But it certainly was seemed to me that his handler bought into. His yes. handler wanted this to be true. I think so. Yeah. And of course, his handler kind of needed it to be true because his handler would have been working on this project and he would have needed to supply results. So you're unimpressed just from reading the... The, di the dialogue and the description, you're about to be way less impressed even than you are. Okay. Because this was not done in a properly scientific fashion. Oh, no. And when they tried to repeat it with people that didn't believe Gower, oh, okay. he was unable to reproduce his results. And, of course, as you know, one of the key things in real scientific inquiry is this reproducibility. You know, and that was actually the my biggest problem with all of this, is that if the CIA or another secret organization does experiments, I'm not even sure it counts as science, because this stuff can't be reproduced by in other labs. Yeah, I mean the very you're right. Uh, the <clears throat> very notion of science being secret, it's like no science has to be open so other people can check up on it, other people can test it. That's the whole. And certainly, Process. I've not heard anything coming out of open university labs where they are subject to peer review and uh, reproducibility and verifiability from other labs that have been able to come up with anything like this. No, and there have uh, Duke University in the States had a big ESP department. When was that? Now, that would have been uh, 60s, 70s, okay. 80s. It might still <clears throat> exist, but if... I kind of want to go there, if it's true. Let's I go would, there. I would totally take that Let's class. Let's take a road trip to Duke CSP University. Department. They'll know we're coming. <laughs> but there has never been a peer-reviewed, reproducible scientific study that demonstrated evidence for ESP. Hmm. So, well, what is your take then? How would something like this, how could something like this go wrong? Well, I think that it went wrong in that particular Cold War narrow tunnel vision way that uh, especially intelligence agencies were so paranoid of the other side getting any kind of leg up mm -hmm. that I think in this case a trick a very successful trick that they played on the Soviet Union was so successful that it ended up getting played on themselves I mean Gower the this guy is so impressed with Gower's ability but Gower went on Johnny Carson in the 70s and Carson who was uh, actually a bit of a magician himself. He was a talk show host for our younger listeners who don't know who Johnny Carson was. Right. He was like the... <laughs> who is the person today? Stephen Colbert. Stephen Colbert. Stephen Colbert. Oh, Colbert. It was the Stephen Colbert of his time. So he had Uri Geller come on, and Uri Geller was going to do all these tricks that he was famous for doing. But what Carson realized is that he needed control over the props. He mm. needed to make sure that Geller wasn't just using stage magic or sleight of hand. And what was fascinating is when they asked Gower to do the same tricks he always did, only they had control over the props. They didn't let him fiddle with the stuff first. They didn't let him touch the stuff. What he said was, oh, it's very difficult to do this when you, because you're such a skeptic. It's um, hurting my powers. Right, okay. And that, to me, doesn't sound convincing. No. If you need to believe in him in order for it to be successful, that right. doesn't seem like a real power. Well, and and actually, if anybody's curious, you can like you can see this footage of Gower on Carson, and I highly recommend it. Uh, just do a search, a uh, video search online for Carson Gower. Okay. Well, on, on that, uh, I I really don't like magic because I don't like not knowing how something is done. 
uh, I don't like not understanding it. So I think that's probably why we are in this field. That's right. Yeah, because we have this need to know what's actually happening. So I, I don't know when it was, but I, I sometime you know was watching innocently watching a TV show that had nothing to do with magic, and one of the characters performs a magic trick, and it drove me crazy. So I, I then descended into a little bit of the world of stage magic. Not that I could possibly perform a trick myself. But that wasn't the point. The point was to try and figure out how this stuff was done. And it was really interesting how a lot of the things that when you see them, you, you would immediately say, well, that's just impossible. That could not be a trick is actually often straight up just a trick. And often it comes down to something really simple that we have overlooked. And then as soon as you hear it, you're like, well, of course that's how it works. Exactly. Like. Oh, obviously. So there was one trick which is horrible for a podcast because it's a very visual thing, but it has to do with laying down a this whole bunch well. of cards. And um, yeah, it laying down a whole bunch of cards and apparently giving the, the uh, subject free choice to choose which cards they want to remove off the table. And lo and behold, the card that you had predicted would be the one chosen is the one chosen by this person, all face down, all these cards are face down. And you think, well, there's no way that this could be an accident. There must be some kind of ESP telepathy happening. But of course, the trick is very simple. You have two rows of cards and you say, choose row one or row two. Now, if I know the card is in row two and you choose row one, I take row one away. If you choose row two, I still take row one away. Your All right. assumption... So if you point at a deck, if I know it's not in that deck, I'm like, oh, you've chosen that deck to take out. Exactly. And if it is in that deck, I say, oh, you've chosen that deck to remain. That's so right. So these cheap little tricks. But what's amazing is that these cheap little tricks by people like Geller apparently were able to convince the CIA... Well, it's, it's, I think, to be fair, it's a combination of cheap tricks and then also a lot of some tricks that are really skillful, like yeah. sleight of hand or, or stuff. Or cold that, reading. If you yes. look at uh, the people who's, who <clears throat> claim they, they can speak to ghosts, right? Uh, it can be a very powerful experience, mm. but, and it is, a, it is a skill, it's just not the skill they say it is. Right. It's not the skill to speak to ghosts, it's the skill to be able to read people's micro-expressions. Right. It's the skill to be able to ask broad questions and then narrow down to... Right. And, and, and also in defense of the CIA, I should point out that in 1995, they, they say, they just closed the whole thing down. They're like, we have never gotten any good information from this. This is nonsense. Are so, you, now, are you referring specifically to Project Stargate? Because again, I go back to Annie Jacobson's interview uh, where she claims this still continues today. And just to be uh, clear, we're recording in 2017. Mm -hmm. So apparently... There is still money being spent on whether there are psychics and whether we can use them to uh, mess with our enemies. I think that there are definitely weird psychological experiments still going on. Hmm. I don't know. If, I mean, Stargate is done. And I, I don't know if, if the sort of psychic aspect is still there. But this desire to be able to mess with human brains, that is definitely something that continues to go on and we see plenty of evidence for. And the history of that is a far more horrifying history than Project Stargate. When we start getting into things like MKUltra, right. which has sort of some similar aspects to it, we'll see a far more destructive, far more expensive, and far more horrifying story of the relationship between intelligence and the human mind. But that will be 
a separate podcast. That will be for the next podcast. That will maybe be a couple podcasts, because that one will be rough. <laughs> It'll be really rough. So, any closing comments on any of this? I am shocked and awed by the fact that this research potentially still continues and was given as much attention and resources as it was for the 20, 30 years that it was going. It is a part of the history of the United States that I really didn't know about until you and I started exploring conspiracy theories. And it makes me want to go back to my old magic uh, handbooks and figure out how Geller knew it was 24 purple grapes. Oh, the answer was they they put it up on the wall. Remember that they yeah. took it to a wall? Well, there was like a little gap he could see oh, through no. the next room. That is so... This is, this is what I mean. This is why the CIA should not be Very doing science experiments. How about you, Nathan? What is your takeaway from all this? Uh, for me, the most interesting part of this is that I think that they faked the Nautilus story in order to trick the Soviets, and then the Soviets did their own submarine test. And one thing that I didn't mention, in 1977, the Americans, as part of this, did a submarine test. Which is another reason why I think that the Nautilus story was fake, because in 1977, according to, again, files that I just came across like half an hour before we did this podcast, in 1977, uh, the uh, DIA arranged to have a submarine, a tiny little five-man underwater vehicle made in Canada. Okay. Good for us. <laughs> they put it off the coast of Southern California, and they performed a, rem a remote viewing test with that submarine. So mm. that, I think, takes the whole lie full circle to the point where they actually then did do a submarine ESP test. So I think it says a lot about the nature, the paranoid nature of the Cold War, mm -hmm. the desire to get any kind of advantage over <clears> the <throat> other side, how important information was. Mm -hmm. Like, this was... The age in which information was basically the high ground. It wasn't being on top of a hill that gave you an advantage in this war. It was having the telescope to be able to see what the other side was doing. It was such an information uh, struggle. So there's so much we can learn from this Stargate project. I find it fascinating. Yeah, so that's what I will say. And, um, and to conclude... I'm going to wait. He's making a psychic gesture. I'm making a psychic gesture. <laughs> I'm picking a number. Hold on. I'm going to try something out. You can't see. No, I'm, I'm looking. He's not looking. I'm, I'm writing a number All right. on a piece of paper. Yes. Lee can't see it. No. I'm going to project the number into his head. This is not faked. This is legit. It's between 1 and 50, and the two numbers are not repeated. A number between 1 and 50, the two numbers are not repeated. I would say one of the numbers is uh, four. And the other one is? Five? Uh, 37. Ah, oh, well, you know, not that, that far off. Way far off. And, <laughs> and we conclude. And we conclude.